Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 245. We'll continue in the book of 2 Chronicles with a brief summary of chapters 24 through 27 and follow with some thoughts about getting out over your skis. Chapter 24 divides Yoash's monarchy into two. The first, the good part, began when he was crowned king at age seven after being hidden for years by Yehoiada the priest, and the second half after Yehoiada dies and Yoash goes a-wandering down the idolatrous path. Yoash renewed and invigorated the house of God that his grandmother had defiled with idolatrous paraphernalia, and though flush with the people's cash, he made sure all the contractors and workers got paid. And then, with the death of Yehoiada the Kohen, it's as if someone came along with a dry erase marker and vigorously rubbed away all the old Kohen's teachings and guidance. Quote, And they abandoned the house of Adonai, God of their fathers, and served the cultic poles and the idols, and there was a fury against Judah and Jerusalem because of this guilt of theirs. No amount of pleading or criticism from the prophet class moves the people to repent. Indeed, when Zechariah, Yehoiada's son, tries to get folks back on the straight and narrow, he is stoned to death for his trouble at the king's behest. This will not stand! And indeed it doesn't, as within two verses the Arameans attack and strike a serious blow against Yoash and his forces, and quote, When they went off, for they left him with grievous wounds, his servants plotted against him because of the bloodshed of the son of Jehoiada the priest, and they killed him in his bed. He died, and they buried him in the city of David, but they did not bury him in the tombs of the kings. Amatsia, Yoash's son, takes the throne. In chapter 25, tells us he's pretty upstanding as a king, a solid A minus B plus. Quote, and he did what was right in the eyes of Adonai, but not with a whole heart. And he also had the guys who murdered his father put to death. When the new king decides to attack Edom, he calls up the reserves. But he feels that it won't be sufficient to carry the day, so he turns to Israelite mercenaries to round up the numbers. This rouses the ire of God who sends a man of God to let the king know that, quote, O king, let not the army of Israel come with you. For Adonai is not with Israel, with all the Ephraimites, but you yourself, come, do it, be strong for battle, else God will make you stumble before the enemy, for there is power in God to aid or to make stumble. To everyone's surprise, Amatia listens and sends the Israelite mercenaries home with their cash, but they're still pissed. And on their return home, these mercenaries sack a number of Judahite towns on the way. Amatia wins the war against Edom, and it involves throwing 10,000 captives from a high place down into the valley below to their deaths, and looting the Edomite god statues, which Amatia then sets up for ritual worship and incense burning. Another man of God shows up to excoriate the king. You'd worship the gods of the nation you just defeated in defiance of your god that delivered you the win? So dumb. And what's even dumber is what follows. Amatia smack talks the king of Israel and goads him into a fight. The king of Israel responds with, God's German here wants to die for the country. Oblige him. Quote, and Judah was routed by Israel and every man fled to his tent. But Yoash caught Amatia, son of Yoash, son of Yehoahaz, in Beth Shemesh, and brought him to Jerusalem, and breached the wall from the gate of Ephraim as far as the corner gate, four hundred cubits. And he took all the gold and all the silver, and the vessels that were found in the house of God in charge of Obed-Edom, and the treasuries of the king's house, and the hostages, and he went back to Samaria. 
The chronicler promptly sends off Amatia, quote, And the rest of the acts of Amatia early and late, are they not written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel? And from the time Amatia swerved away from Adonai, they hatched a plot against him in Jerusalem, and he fled to Lachish, and they sent him after to Lachish and put him to death there. And they bore him off his on horses and buried him with his fathers in the city of Judah. Chapter 26 begins with the coronation of Uzziah, who, spoilers, managed to keep his seat for 52 years. How did he do it? By listening to the word of God and God's prophet Zechariah. Simple. He subdued the Philistines, the Arabs, the Ammonites. He built cities in Ashdod, expanded Judah's industrial base and agricultural output. He expanded the army and advanced military technology. But leave it to these guys to always find a way to screw things up. Quote, and as he grew strong, he became so overweening as to act ruinously. And he betrayed Adonai, his God, and came into Adonai's temple to burn incense on the incense altar. Hey, that's the Kohen's job, you know. And when Azariah the Kohen rebukes the king about his overstep, quote, Uzziah was angry, the censer for burning incense in his hand, and as he raged against the priests, skin blanch broke out on his forehead in front of the priests upon the incense altar. Uzziah's rushed into quarantine where he remained until his dying day, and his son Yotam is installed in his place. Chapter 27 covers the period of Yotam's rule, and if his predecessors are any indication, we're in store for another A-B-plus regime, unless the marks are inflated. Well, Yotam manages to squeeze out a solid A. He, quote, did what was right in the eyes of Adonai, as all that Uzziah his father had done. Only he did not come into Adonai's temple, and the people were still acting ruinously. He expands and fortifies Jerusalem and subdues Ammon. And how does he accomplish this? Quote, For he made his ways firm before Adonai his God. And the rest of the acts of Yotam and all of his battles and his ways, look, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. When he dies, Ahaz assumes the throne, but for his exploits, we will have to wait until the next episode, which will drop in a fortnight. Okay, naming this episode after Icarus and then talking about getting out over your skis is perhaps a bit of a mixed metaphor. But we all know the story of the former and perhaps are somewhat aware of the idiom, which is the latter. In both cases, the individual in question, be it the son of the master craftsperson Daedalus or an overconfident sports aficionado, acts impetuously or preemptively before properly understanding the reality of the present moment. In the case of Icarus... He should have known the reality of the present moment. His father told him, quote, For the fogs about the earth may weigh you down, and the blaze from the sun are going to melt your feathers apart. But Icarus was too taken with himself in flight, too giddy to remember those words when he found himself featherless and falling into the sea. And the thing is, you probably can't fault Icarus either. Daedalus was imprisoned in King Minos's labyrinth and fashioning two sets of wings, yada, 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 you know the rest. But imagine that moment of exhilaration when you, when you, a land creature, imprisoned by a vengeful king, find yourself flying to freedom. I don't know about you, but even I would be overcome by giddiness in that moment, too taken up with that feeling of lightness, of propelling yourself through the air, up and away from imprisonment, over the sparkling sea on your way to freedom. And yes, 
this is precisely the moment when you can't figuratively lose your head because you might end up literally losing your head. But you can understand how, for a minute, you might get a bit carried away, or more like up, up, and away, and then sadly down, down, and into the sea. Perhaps a wiser person, someone with a bit more experience in the world, like Daedalus, might have kept a leveler head. But Icarus, who is represented in classical literature and art as a little more than a teen, it's a lot to expect him to keep focused and cool in that euphoric moment. We get a sense of this discomfort with victim-blaming in Ascolia on Euripides, where Icarus falls, not because of his flighty focus, which is eminently human and understandable, but because he fashioned himself greater than Helios the sun. Hubris is back. As such, Helios punishes the swole-headed lad by focusing the sun's rays on Icarus's wings to melt the wax. I guess we capture more of what's happening internally vis-a-vis being impetuous and acting without all the needed information when we think about the image of getting out over your skis. And it's more relatable. First of all, I would safely venture that there are more people out there listening right now who've been on skis, water, or snow, as opposed to those who've slapped on feathered wings for a quick flight. For those of us who've been on skis, at first, it doesn't feel natural to have wooden or fiberglass extensions on our feet. It takes some time before we begin to feel comfortable with them and consider them manageable. It takes even more time before we forget that they're there and move our bodies in a way that we can just do the things we want to do on the slopes or on the water without even thinking about it. But along the way, sometimes we forget that it's a process, or we get impatient, or we assume we we got this when we actually don't 100%, or we're just being risky and impetuous, or we get out over our skis, and though we may have it under control for a second or five or ten, pretty soon we've wiped out and If we haven't injured ourselves too badly, we get back up on our feet and rebuild our sense of ability with these appendages. Which describes best what happened with Uziah and the incense. Did he get all giddy like a school child and forget himself? Or did he piss off God and get righteously smacked down? Or did he think he could do more than he actually could? The incense business with Uziah is a chronicler original. It doesn't merit a mention in the original storyline in 2 Kings. Uziah builds in Jerusalem, he fortifies cities on the coastal plain, he digs many cisterns, he expands agricultural output because, quote, he loved the soil, he subdues enemies near and far, bolsters Judah's military output with the newest technology, but all of these accomplishments for him aren't enough. He can be the biggest king, the greatest general, the most revered architect and city planner, the man with the greenest thumb, but after all that, he just has to burn incense on the altar in the house of God. It's a weird flex, but there's traditionally been a bright line between monarchy and priesthood, between the tribe of Judah on one side and the tribe of Levi on the other. And never the twain shall meet. Like a biblical separation of powers, but Uzziah sees it as an arbitrary obstacle between him and what he wants. And even when confronted by Azariah the Kohen and 80 warrior Kohanim who tell him, quote, it is not for you, Uziah, notice that, they don't say King Uziah or your highness, it is not for you, Uziah, to burn incense to Adonai, but for the Aaronide priests who are consecrated to burn incense, get out of the sanctuary for you have betrayed it, and it is no glory for you from Adonai God. And Uziah doesn't really care. 
He has the incense censer in his hand, and only when he rages against them, quote, skin blanch broke out on his forehead in front of the priests upon the incense altar. And Azariah the high priest turned toward him with all the priests, and look, he was stricken with skin blanch on his forehead, and they rushed him out of there, and he too pressed to go out, for Adonai had infected him. Unlike Icarus, Uziah is not acting out of momentary impetuousness. He, like Icarus, hears the warning from his father not to fly too close to the sun, but instead of taking it in and then getting carried away by flying, he pauses to, t- to yell into his father's face. Don't you tell me what to do. I'll do what I want. He also doesn't get out over his skis because Uziah has no experience skiing or burning incense or doing whatever else the Kohanim do in the house of God. He hasn't been on his skis long enough to even know where he's supposed to stand. Indeed, if anything, Uziah acts in the way Icarus is portrayed in the Euripides Scolia. His downfall is a result not of his impulsiveness, but of his arrogance. Brought on by defying the gods, Icarus falls into the sea. Uziah's brow turns red with rage, then white with tsara'at. So not only is he forever banned from access to the temple, because Kohanim who are stricken with this skin condition are... But he is also isolated from the palace as well, locked away in quarantine forever. So pay heed and see what happens when you try and grab too much power for yourself. You end up alone, with yourself, and with nothing. I wonder how many more times we'll have to repeat this lesson. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Tell a friend about TanakhCast over coffee. Send another friend an email or text, nothing fancy. Help your aunt who just got her first smartphone to download a podcatcher and subscribe to Nachcast. And if you have a spare moment after all that, write a brief glowing review at Apple Podcasts. Apparently it helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning vibe this podcast. And it's also a nice thing to do. If you want to help in an even bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast at Patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 246, when we continue in Second Chronicles with chapters 28 through 31.